Welcome back to this season of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the audio files from the DocSF Experience 2022. I'm Dr. Stefano Bini, your host for this podcast and the founder and chair of the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, or DocSF. In this, the third podcast on this question of augmented reality, virtual reality, and the metaverse, I had the opportunity to interview Louis Rosenberg on stage. He is a CEO of Unanimous AI, but previously he was the first to develop an augmented reality prototype back in 1992 at the Air Force Research Laboratory. He has tremendous perspective on this topic and we really enjoyed this conversation. Hope you join us, the two of us, on the DocSF stage. So we told you it would take you to places that seem, well, you have to suspend belief, right? To suspend belief in what's possible and let yourself consider what technology might take us. And to give us a little context to that and to that journey and the fact that it is ongoing, we have the pleasure to have Louis Rosenberg join us today. If Louis would join us back, and he, was, he earlier joined us for the panel, and Dr. Rosenberg, Mr. Rosenberg is actually arguably one of the inventors of augmented reality. The whole concept came out of his lab, and we'll have a conversation about that, that history to put it in context for us. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Just, uh, I'm, I'm honored, actually, to be here speaking to you. So this is really, really exciting. Actually, I'd love to go back to the early 90s in, in that lab and give us a little history about how the whole idea of creating these augmented environments came about. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of people don't realize it, but the, the world of virtual reality, in terms of the, the community and the industry, first started in the, in the late 80s and was very vibrant in the early 90s. So I think the, the phrase virtual reality was coined in like 87 or 88. And I was, I was a graduate student at Stanford uh, at the time. And I was very interested in this idea of virtual reality. And so I was uh, fortunate enough to guide my doctoral work in that direction. And uh, I was also fortunate enough to, to work in a VR lab at NASA. There were very few labs at the time. And I was, this was during the very early days. And so I was working on software to model interocular distance, the distance between your eyes, and to optimize depth perception in, in head-mounted displays and other displays. And I, was, I, I thought virtual reality was amazing. I, I was very, very excited about it. But I really didn't like wearing the headsets and being cut off from the world around me. I felt like I knew that the, the fidelity would get better, the headsets would get smaller, the technology would get better. And I still wasn't sure I would like being cut off from the world around me. It just felt like a, a visceral reaction. And what I really, you know, as I spent hours writing code, I really just wanted the power of virtual reality just to be spread all around me, to just be in the world, and the content would just be there as part of my natural world, and I wouldn't be cut off. And, and so I proposed the idea to the U.S. Air Force, to Air Force Research Laboratory, and, and they funded me to, to build what ended up being called the Virtual Fixtures Project, which was really the first functional augmented reality system. And, and interesting enough, the, the thing that got the Air Force excited back then when I, when I pitched it to them was the potential for medical application. Right. And, and so what I, what I said was, you know, imagine if, and this was in 1992, I said, imagine if you were a surgeon and you could look inside of a patient and imagine if you couldn't just look inside the patient, but you could actually physically feel things. And, and that's why the project was called the Virtual Fixtures Project, because the, the concept that, that I got them excited about was saying, 
hey, imagine if instead of having to have all these physical fixtures, these physical mechanical things that could, that could help surgeons perform tasks, they could be completely virtual. And so this first system we actually built, uh, the, humans, the people would wear a full upper, box, uh, upper body exoskeleton. And so they'd wear this big exoskeleton and they'd look into a vision system and they could not just see and hear, but they could feel. And uh, this was, we were back in 1992, 1993, we were able to show that we could enhance people's performance. We could enhance their physical dexterity. We could enhance their skill by 100, 200% by creating these, these overlays. And, and so I was convinced that this was useful uh, and people liked it. Uh, but the thing that probably changed my view more than anything was uh, because I was running these experiments on, on people. People would come in and, and wear the exoskeleton, and every single one of them would get out of the, get out of the rig and say, like, this is amazing. One day this is going to be everywhere, and, and I agreed. And so in 1993, I founded uh, a company called Immersion Corporation, one of the early VR companies. And I believed that within 10 years it would be, it would be everywhere. I, it was, you know, it was... I was off by two decades, and there were a number of other companies at that time that were off. I mean, we, in the early 90s, we really thought that we were there. Uh, if you looked at the cover of Wired magazine in 1995, there were images of, you know, virtual reality was the big thing, and by 2000, we're all going to be in the metaverse, and that didn't happen. That said, I feel like we really, I feel like it's real this time. <laughs> uh, you know, now we're at a point where the metaverse really is right around the corner and all the pieces are in place and all that magic is still, uh, that we experienced way back is still there and, and even more so. So as someone who's been faked out multiple times that we're, that we're close, I, I really do believe this time we, we actually are genuinely close and, and all the pieces for the metaverse to, to really change everybody's lives by, certainly by 2037, but I think that even just 10 years from now, uh, everybody will spending significant time in these virtual worlds. So as a way for us to understand what might be future blocks to deployment implementation, where do you think the, the issues were in the last 20 years? Because you thought by 2000, for sure, we're in there. 2010, we still weren't there. What were the technical blocks or the hardware blocks you thought were still critical to get us to where we are today? So the, the, the biggest blocks were cost. And so when I, when I founded Immersion Corporation in 1993, we knew how to do it, and we actually could create really good virtual worlds, but we couldn't do them on a, on a PC, we couldn't do them on a phone, we couldn't do them on a single chip that goes in a headset. We could do them on Silicon Graphics workstations that cost $60,000, $70,000. And for that reason, the medical industry was actually the first industry to really support virtual reality. And, and so in 93, 94, 95, at Immersion, we developed some of the very first medical simulators for training doctors in, in virtual reality for medical schools. And so throughout the 90s, 95 to 2000, we built uh, virtual reality simulators for laparoscopic surgery, endoscopic surgery. Uh, we had simulators specifically for bronchoscopy, colonoscopy, angioplasty, other catheter procedures. And for, for decades, we sold uh, simulators to medical schools. When that was, you know, it was, we owe the medical field to keep the industry alive because all of the other parts of it, the consumer drive for, uh, for VR completely disappeared. Mm. By, by 1997, when people started talking about the internet, 
Nobody wanted to invest in virtual reality anymore. Nobody wanted to push it. And it was the, the medical space that kept the field alive until the early 2010s. And that's when the industry came back alive again. And so what was the barrier? The barrier was cost. And the thing that really changed everything, in my mind, was the iPhone. The, the iPhone uh, 2007 was launched, convinced everybody to go from a flip phone to a smartphone. And within five years, the cost of uh, the flat panel screens and the cost of the uh, the sensors and the cost of the processors came down so much that by the early 2010s, the ability to do head-mounted displays that were much, much higher fidelity, everything much smaller, everything much cheaper, finally, finally materialized. And at the same time, uh, the cellular networks got faster, and so communication speeds. And so it was really the, the smartphone that drove all those things, drove the cost down, drove the communication speeds up. And then it's, you know, it, it took another 10 years for the industry to, again, re-mature. But now it's really at the point where I think it is mature, and it's no longer small companies and startups that are pushing it. It's all the biggest companies in the world. And I think the thing that you can convince you that it's going to happen is that the largest companies in the world are investing billions or tens of billions a year with the expectation that the metaverse is going to change their business. So you've talked about... Uh, augmented reality as becoming a, a one of a series of layers of information that we'll be consuming and how they'll become so ingrained in our experience, they'll be very hard to extrapolate ourselves from that. Can you, can you go a little bit into that discussion? Sure. So I mean, when we're trying to think out to 2037, you know, how is the metaverse going to affect our life? I think it's worth first saying that I see two different metaverses. I, I, think I see a virtual metaverse and an augmented metaverse. And the virtual metaverse is a purely virtual world where you're wearing VR headsets. Like we saw earlier. Similar to the videos yeah. that we saw. Right now, they're very cartoony. They'll get better. They'll get photorealistic. That said, I still believe people are not going to want to spend all day in virtual worlds like that. I don't believe people are going to spend all day with big headsets on and being isolated or separated from their natural surroundings. I think people will spend a few hours a day. I think people you know, professionally will use it for you know, targeted applications, but I think you know, for shopping, for socializing, for entertainment, it will be used. It will almost be used at a, you know, the way people use television as for limited duration. The augmented metaverse is going to be a world where you're wearing very, very lightweight glasses. It'll get to the point where they don't look very different than just current glasses. And those glasses will bring virtual information into your world. And they'll bring uh, all kinds of magical content. It will, it will embellish the world with artistic and, and informational things that are everywhere. It will be driven, whereas the virtual metaverse will be driven by the, by the social media companies of today, because they see it as the social environment of the future. The augmented metaverse will be, will be driven by the mobile phone companies of today. I feel pretty confident that Apple and Google and Samsung all realize that in the 2030s, 20, probably by 2030, 2032, we will no longer be thinking about uh, looking down at our phone for information, we'll be thinking about wearing glasses and having it all around us. And in fact, in the 2030s, we'll look back at the days when people, are walk, you know, people were walking down the street with their neck bent, staring at something, and we'll think that that's silly because it really is. The, the natural place for all this information to exist is not here. It's to, it's to just exist naturally in your world. And so when 
Apple and Microsoft and Google deploy these technologies and content exists, information exists, I think adoption will be very quickly, will happen very quickly because if you don't have the glasses, you, will, you won't access the information. And so in theory would, would follow an adoption curve that's very similar to going from flip phones to smartphones. At some point, everybody needed a smartphone even though it cost 10 times more because you were missing out. And I think going from phones to AR glasses will be the same thing. Uh, within, within five to 10 years of the consumer launch of you know, glasses from, say, Apple, everybody will feel like they need those glasses or they'll be missing out on information. Information like the, the turns on the street, but also you, you talked about like if you're selling something to a customer, it might tell you this is a third time returning customer. They eat it all the time. Their preferred food is this. It's a remarkable how much information they'll be able to access and project into the field of view that's public. So information will be everywhere. Information, some of it will be artistic and some of it will be entertainment and some of it will be commercial. And in fact, there'll be a lot of commercial information. And, that, and that's the part of it that I worry a lot about, which is the metaverse gives the platform providers an absurd amount of power. <laughs> and, and they can use that power for amazing things like, like the hospitals of the future and for art and entertainment of the future, but it will also be used for promotional reasons. And so when you're wearing AR glasses, that means that the platform providers will be able to track everywhere you go and everything you do, and, and they'll be tracking you as you're walking down the street, and they'll know when you look into a store window, and they'll, look, they'll know how long you spend looking at things and where you speed up and walk past. And so the tracking that we currently uh, you know, experience in social media, which is you know, tracking where you click and, and who your friends are, that will go to tracking everything about our lives. And I think it's dangerous. I, I'm pushing very hard for, for regulation of... Uh, metaverse platforms because of uh, the ex uh, amazing amount of data that they'll be able to track. And then they'll also be able to, to inject things into our world, whether it's a virtual world or, or an augmented world, uh, just like they do in social media. But the advertisements won't be flat pop-up ads or videos. The advertisements will be immersive. And so there'll be virtual product placements. You'll be walking down the street and you'll see something and you might just think it's a natural part of your world and, a, and you don't, might not know that a third party injected that into your world for you to experience as a way persuade you. And so the ability to, to market to us in an immersive sense and track us in an immersive sense means that there's dangers of the metaverse. I, I, my hope is that we can learn from social media and push to regulate the metaverse because it does have the potential to make our lives magical, and it makes sense, especially augmented reality. It makes sense for the content to be where you want it, not to be trapped on a screen, if we can make it safe and we can prevent corporations from being able to use all that data. You, it's interesting, when, you, when, uh, when I wrote, first read some of your work, and I'm like, this is, this is not necessarily a, a wonderful world. Uh, it feels very, very invasive. At the same time, you point out in your article that it's likely that we as humans will make the trade-off to share our data for the additional information we get in the world because we start to become reliant on information that is now projected into the virtual world to the point that we can't live without it. If you can't live without it, there's this trade-off, which will likely happen because history tells us we tend to do that. And no matter how 
toxic it may look or seem. We have a couple minutes. This, this path, this thought path that we just went through leads us naturally to your, your last endeavor, which is unanimous AI. We could spend an hour on that, but I think it's worth, and for those who are interested, there's a phenomenal TED talk that he has on this topic, but can you just give us two cents and just get everybody interested in maybe pursuing a little more research in that space? Sure. So, uh, so my interest overall is, is how to use technologies to, to amplify human abilities, and that's what got me interested in virtual reality and augmented reality, and also artificial intelligence. And so my, my current company, Unanimous AI, is an artificial intelligence company that really takes a very different approach. Instead of using AI to replace people, which is what a lot of AI research is doing, it uses AI to connect groups of people together and make them smarter. And it is modeled on the biological principle of swarm intelligence, where you know, natural organisms are able to make decisions together that are, uh, allow them to become a superorganism, to become significantly smarter than the individuals who make them up. And, uh, and so at starting uh, seven years ago at Unanimous, we said, well, if, if birds and bees and fish can get smarter together in groups, maybe people can. And so we, we built a system called Swarm. It allows groups, whether it's small groups or big groups, to come together and make decisions, make predictions, make medical diagnoses together in groups. And, uh, and we found it works. Nature, nature works. They, they become significantly smarter. And, and since this is a medical group, uh, we, we, public, we, we, did a, we had an NSF-funded study with uh, Stanford Medical School a couple years ago where we had groups of radiologists uh, diagnose chest x-rays as a swarm. And we said, you know, what would be better? Is it better for them to diagnose by themselves, diagnose together by just taking a vote, or diagnose by working together as a biological swarm? And that just means they log into our software and, and they, they answer together in real time. And what the, the study found that we, we published with Stanford was that we reduced their diagnostic errors by 36% when they worked together as a swarm. And again, it was a use of AI that, that was not getting rid of any of the human intelligence. It was just amplifying the human intelligence. And, and we've done studies with, with other groups in uh, groups of financial traders can make more accurate financial forecasts. Groups of sports fans can make more accurate sports forecasts. We're currently working with the United Nations. They, they've been using Swarm to predict famines around the world. And what they find is when they have groups of people, and they might have just 20 people, logged in from around the world, experts in, in different aspects of famines. And when they work together as a swarm, they, they amplify their intelligence and they make better predictions. And so it's, it's really about you know, how can we use AI to keep people in the, in the loop, not remove people, and leverage the fact that you know, people are smart. And, and I, for any of you that run teams that make the decisions, whether you're trying to allocate resources or decide which of four projects to do, and the voting thing hasn't usually worked, it seldom does to come up with the best solution, I highly recommend you take a look at the website, how it works, and how you come to the best solution for everybody, not the one that votes out best. I thought it was phenomenal. But with that, I want to thank you for taking time to spend the, the, day, the day with us, and we really, really enjoyed it. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and will consider joining us live in San Francisco for DocSF 2023, when we will explore how digital technologies will enhance, support, and enable the expansion of the outpatient surgery arena. 
Register now to join our mailing list at docsf.health, docsf.health, and be the first to access our limited tickets. DocSF, join the revolution.